to Psalm 34 this morning, and it's a real joy to get to preach on this psalm. This is probably my, if I had to pick a favorite psalm, this would probably be it. Um, This has been one that's been very meaningful for our family for a while, and even though this is not a typical, like, wedding passage, this this is the chapter that was read in our wedding. Um, So it's always been real special for Shalane and me. Um, But uh, we're actually just going to be looking at the first ten verses this morning of Psalm 34. So Psalm 34, verses 1 through 10. And I'm going to start with the uh, little superscript right above uh, verse 1 there. This is God's word. Of David, when he changed his behavior before Abimelech, so that he drove him out and he went away. I will bless the Lord at all times. His praise shall continually be in my mouth. My soul makes its boast in the Lord. Let the humble hear and be glad. O magnify the Lord with me, and let us exalt his name together. I sought the Lord, and he answered me, and delivered me from all my fears. Those who look to him are radiant, and their faces shall never be ashamed. This poor man cried, and the Lord heard him, and saved him out of all of his troubles. The angel of the Lord encamps around those who fear him, and delivers them. O taste and see that the Lord is good. Blessed is the man who takes refuge in him. O fear the Lord, you his saints, for those who fear him have no lack. The young lions suffer want and hunger, but those who seek the Lord lack no good thing. The grass withers and the flower fades, but the word of our God stands forever. Let's go to him and ask him for his help. Gracious Heavenly Father, Lord, we we come to you this morning as uh, in need. Uh, We just sang a moment ago of how we need you. Uh, We know that we need you. We need you in many, many ways. And We need your help even to understand your word, and so we ask that you would make it clear to us this morning. We ask that uh, your Holy Spirit uh, would um, teach us from your word. And Father, we ask that you would show us even more so our our need for Jesus, our need for a Savior. And we ask all these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Um, the, The best teacher I ever had, sometimes you might kind of think about that. Who was the best teacher you ever had? Probably the best teacher I ever had. And I've had a lot of teachers, you know, Grade school, college, seminary. But my favorite was probably Miss Cheryl Boyt, who was my 11th grade American literature teacher. And the reason I, I think Miss Boyt was my favorite teacher is, is because I just look back and I feel like, you know, my intellectual development really took a lot of strides under her tutelage. I feel like she had a really profound effect on sort of shaping my taste in literature. Uh, she was an extremely compassionate woman. Uh, you know, she taught Sunday school at my church. Just a wonderful lady. Um, what I'm trying to say is, if you ever have a chance to meet Cheryl Boyd in Martin, Tennessee, you really shouldn't pass it up. Okay, uh, but but Miss Boyd, you know, one of the reasons that I I keep coming back to her is because, you know, I find myself in many different situations thinking back to things I learned for the first time in her class. And one of the things I remember learning in her class was the importance of. Uh, or, or the interesting connections that would happen when you would study a work of literature and study the, the, author, the author's life a little bit kind of alongside of that. And you would see these kind of interesting parallels. And so I remember, you know, before we read uh, Billy Budd, right? It's a Herman Melville short novel. Uh, before we read Billy Budd, we, we read a little bit about Herman Melville's life and, and how at the time when he wrote Billy Budd, he was, you know, he'd been a failure. He'd written Moby Dick, 
but it was, uh, you know, it had kind of flopped. It wasn't really recognized as a national treasure as it would be later. And so he was kind of, you know, destitute and wrote this novel, Billy Budd. And this novel was, this little novel was actually found in a coffee can in his desk, you know, like a decade after he died, right? And so that's, that, all those little facts kind of shaped the way that we read this, this little this story. Um, and I couldn't help but think every time I was reading this book, you know, this was in a coffee can for 10 years and no one knew about it. Um, and, and, you know, we studied, you know, the life of William Faulkner before we read his short story, A Rose for Emily, and, and things like that. And, and that was always really fascinating to see sort of how a person's, how the author's life, you know, would sort of shape and color the way that we would read their work. And some of the Psalms allow us to do that as well. Uh, many of the Psalms have something called a superscript, which I mentioned Earlier, And th- these are usually the words that appear just before the first verse. And they're usually kind of l- small, but they're all caps, okay? Like small all caps. Um, and these superscripts, these are part of the Hebrew text, okay? This is not something that, you know, the English Bible editors or publishers put in there. This was part of the Hebrew text uh, that was translated for us in English. Um, and these were, these usually, they would sometimes have... Um, certain musical notations that we don't really understand. Sometimes they would say, you know, this is for the choir master, you know, for, for kind of directing how they were to be used in, in the worship in the, in the temple, like in these ancient days. Uh, sometimes they would tell you who the author was, and sometimes they would tell you even kind of when the author wrote this. And that's what we have in, if we look at Psalm 34, the superscript that I read just a moment ago. Let's look at that again. This tells us two things. It tells us who wrote it and tells us when in his life he wrote it. So it says, of David, when he changed his behavior before Abimelech, so that he drove him out and he went away. Well, you could read about the story in 1 Samuel 21. We're not going to look at it this morning, but I'll sort of summarize it for you. Uh, in, in this particular instance, what had happened, what, what was going on in David's life, is that Samuel had already anointed David to be king. Uh, but King Saul was still alive, and he was not very happy about that. Uh, he was really angry at David. He hated David. He wanted David to be killed. So this is the point of David's life where he's sort of fleeing, continually fleeing from Saul, and Saul's trying to hunt David down and kill him. And so uh, the, we read in chapter 21 that, that Saul, I mean, excuse me, that David goes to this priest, and he and his men are hungry, they're starving, so this priest gives him some bread. And just to show you how serious Saul, how seriously Saul was pursuing David, that later in chapter 22 of 1 Samuel, that this priest who had given bread to David, uh, Saul has him killed, right? Because he had, he had assisted David. He had given aid to David. That's how, serious, that's how seriously Saul was on the hunt for David. And so David's trying to hide from Saul. He's on the run for his life. And he goes to this city called Gath. And Gath is a, a, a Philistine city. And the Philistines were big-time enemies of Israel, as you probably well remember. And incidentally, Gath was actually the hometown of Goliath, who was the, the big hero for, for uh, the Philistines, whom David had killed several years earlier. Uh, but David goes here because he thinks, hey, this is the last place that Saul is going to look for me. You know, it's a pretty good idea. I'll go kind of hide out in Gath. No one will ever look for me there. Uh, well, the trouble is that some of the people in Gath started to recognize David. And they started to say, hey, isn't that David? Isn't that the guy who's going to be king of Israel? Like, isn't that the guy that, you know, murdered our hero a few years ago? Uh, and so David starts to fear for his life. And so in, in a kind of a strange story, the way that he escapes is he, he starts to act like he's insane. 
Um, the Bible says that he, he starts to let spit dribble down his beard, and he just starts to sort of talk and babble. And, and the, king of, uh, the king of Gath says, this, you know, what, who is this? This is strange. You know, get this guy out of here. This is not, you know, I don't want to waste my time dealing with this guy. And so he sort of kicks him out of the city. And so David escapes with his life. And then he writes this song, okay, this song of praise, this song of worship. Um, that's when he writes this, after he's just pretended to be insane to save his own life uh, from this king of Gath. And so, um, it, you know, David's situation hasn't changed a great deal. He's still in a pretty tough spot. He's still running from Saul. He's still, uh, Saul still really wants David to be dead. Um, but David pauses to write this song of praise. Um, and so, you know, this is really interesting to me because I guess we, you know, for me at least, I don't normally associate bad times, these tough times in life with worship, right? Um, we usually see bad things as more of a hindrance to our worship, right? As bad things can kind of clog up our worship or, or our desire for worship. Um, but that's not, that doesn't seem to be the case here with David. Um, because, you know, bad things in life can easily sort of drive us away from God or at the very least dampen our desire to worship God, you know, perhaps you've known someone who endured some hor- horrible tragedy, um, and as a result, they left the faith, they left the church, and, and their reasoning was, "Look, I just can't worship a God who would let this sort of terrible thing happen. I, I just can't do it. I just can't go. I just can't do this anymore." Um, perhaps you and I experience this in a less obvious way, in a less dramatic way. You know, perhaps for us, it's just the daily drain of your job or the daily strain of, of, of a difficult family situation or uh, the daily burden of caring for a very ill loved one, perhaps this just leaves you spiritually depressed and, and uninterested. Uh, perhaps you feel shame for some past sin that you just cannot get over. You just cannot forgive yourself for it. You just cannot uh, believe that you could ever be forgiven to the point where you just dread coming to church, uh, that you just feel so fake. When you sing, because you carry this shame with you, this burden, or perhaps there's some fear in your life uh, that's just bothering you so much and distracting you. So when you try to read your Bible, when you try to pray, uh, you're just so distracted and distraught. You just can't, uh, you can't focus. You've you've lost interest. I'm sure some of that sounds familiar uh, to to us. And the good news, I think, is that that this psalm is for people like that. That This psalm is for people like us, people wrestling with things like that. Because what we're going to see in this psalm is that life's difficult circumstances shouldn't hinder our worship or stifle our desire to worship, but instead, uh, life's difficulties can provide us with fertile soil for our worship. And so we're going to see that this morning in three points. Uh, We're going to see first an invitation to worship, then we're going to see the fuel for worship, and finally we're going to see the promise of worship. And so first, let's look at an invitation to worship. And we see that in verses 1 through 3. Uh, David opens this psalm with praise to God, right? We're in the psalms. That's sort of what we expect. We, you know, we're not surprised to see him praising God. Uh, that's pretty typical, I think, for the psalms. And so the first thing he tells us about, about worship, about praise, he tells us when he does it. Look with me at verse 1. He says, I will bless the Lord at all times. His praise shall continually be in my mouth. So when does he do it? He does it all the time, right? That uh, this is not something that he just does once a week. This is not something he just does whenever he's in a certain building or location. But that this is something he desires to do all the time. That every, uh, no matter what circumstance he may find himself in, 
that there's an opportunity for worship. Uh, that's sort of how David is viewing, that's how he's viewing this worship. The next thing he tells us is, is what does this worship look like? What does this worship sound like? Uh, he, he shows us that in verse 2. He says, My soul makes its boast in the Lord. Let the humble hear and be glad. So this is the thing that his soul boasts in. It's, it's the Lord God. That, that is what his soul boasts in. Uh, this is what worship is, to see the Lord, to see Jesus as our greatest treasure, uh, in, to see in all circumstances, uh, to find our satisfaction, to find our joy, to find our comfort and our security, to find our value in the Lord Jesus Christ above all else. And uh, so that's what, that's what David is doing here. That's, what, that's how he's worshiping, that, the, that his soul is boasting in the Lord. His soul is glorying in the Lord. Um, and he tells that this is good news. This is good news for who? For, it's good news for the humble, for those who don't have much to boast about, for those who don't have much to be proud of, those who don't have much uh, going for them, that this is good news, that for them, they can boast, they too can boast in the Lord, that their soul can boast in the Lord and find comfort and security in the Lord. And finally, we see David, so he's, he's kind of, uh, he's described his worship, he's telling us when he worships and what that sounds like, and now he invites us to worship uh, with him, to join in uh, praising. He wants others to participate, and we see that in verse 3. He says, Oh, magnify the Lord with me, and let us exalt his name together. So while worship can and should be something that we do in private, it should be something we do alone and in our, in our homes, um, true worship is never content uh, just being a solitary endeavor. It's never content just being something we do on our own. Uh, but we will desire others to join in us. We want to share it with other people. Um, you know, a good example of this, I think, is, is like our hobbies, you know. Uh, in my house, we have kind of a new, maybe a little bit nerdy hobby that we've gotten into. Um, and that's the hobby of tabletop gaming or board games and card games, okay? Um, and Shalane and I, I, we're really into this right now. We love, every night we're like playing board games and, you know, we're just doing the whole thing. It's a lot of fun. And, you know, we're, we're so into it. We're, so, we're having so much fun with it that last weekend we went to Atlanta. I had the Sunday off, Memorial Day weekend. So we went to Atlanta. We met some of our old friends from Charlotte and Atlanta. And, you know, we loaded up the car with some of our favorite you know, nerdy board games and everything, and, and we, we took them, and we were so excited, and we sat down, and we had a wild weekend of board gaming in Atlanta with our friends, and uh, it was a great time, and, and it seems to have, you know, rubbed off on them, because my friend texted me the other day and said, hey, we, we bought some games, and so I was like, yes, yeah, nice, uh, and so, you know, when you love a hobby, when there's something that you really enjoy, you want to share it with people, right, because it's more fun when you share it with people, especially people that you love, people that you're into, whether it's hunting or board gaming or baseball or whatever, you want to share it with the people in your life. You want to share it with the people who are close to you uh, because it intensifies the joy, right? Um, if there's some, if you take joy in fishing, you know, it's always more fun to take someone that you love to go fishing with you. If you take joy in hunting, if you take joy in throwing the baseball or whatever, you know, it's always more fun when you add more people to that. It just intensifies the joy. And so I think we kind of see an example of that here with, with David, right? That David is, he is worshiping the Lord. He is praising God and he is enjoying it. And, he, and he's not content to do it alone. He wants others to join him uh, because that will intensify the joy. It will make it all the better to have other people worshiping God alongside him. Um, and so it's meant to be, this is meant to be a very appealing invitation to us. This is meant to be a very attractive invitation when, when David says, oh, magnify the Lord with me. Come on, let's exalt his name together. He's calling us to worship alongside him. 
And so my question for you this morning is, is what is your response to that invitation? And I'm not, I'm not asking for the Sunday school answer, okay? Which is, yeah, that sounds great. Um, but I'm asking, like, what, what is your gut reaction when you hear that invitation in verse 3 to exalt the Lord's name together? Do you feel, you know, there's a couple different, I think, uh, reactions you may have. One is that you may just feel totally in sync with David. And you may say, you know, you, you read those words and your soul stirs within you. And those words, uh, they ring true and they glow like a burning coal for you, right? Um, and you say, yes, this, this makes me want to praise God. Reading that just charges me up. Uh, or you may be in another camp. You may say, well, I read that and, you know, I, I don't necessarily feel my soul being stirred, but I, I want to. You know, I, I want to have what David has. I desire to feel that. Or maybe your response might be something else. You might, you might, your response might be more like this. You might be saying, look, you know, right now I just don't have the spiritual energy to worship like that. You know, my, my tank is, is dry. I, I just, that sounds great, but I just, it doesn't, you know, I don't even, I'm not even at the point where I even desire that. It's just, it seems like such an exhausting endeavor spiritually. I just don't even know that I, you know, that that's your reaction to it. I don't even know that I can, that I can do that. <clears throat> I just can't muster up the spiritual energy required. But no matter what your response may be, David is quick to share with us the reasons for his worship. He wants to tell us why he is motivated to worship. And so that leads us to our second point this morning, the fuel for worship. Uh, this week, I saw a really interesting video online. Um, it was a it was a 2008 um, Big Ten uh, indoor track championship. Okay, girls championship. All right, it's a very narrow uh, thing there. Uh, but it was this. There's this this runner named Heather Dornadin. She run, she was a runner for the University of Minnesota. And this was the final heat. This wasn't even the finals. Okay, it was just the final heat of the 600 meter race. This is an amazing video. This, in, in this race, the, you know, there's four or five girls in the race, and they were all running. And 600 meters is not very long, and so this, it's like a, the whole thing is like a sprint. Um, and what happened is, at the beginning of the very last lap, uh, Heather Dornadin was in first place, and there was a very tight pack, okay? They're all running together. But she was in the lead, and she trips and falls down. And this is not just like a little stumble. I mean, she like trips and like skids, like slides belly, you know, first on the, on the track. Um, and immediately, of course, all the runners leave her in the dust. You know, she's, she's behind. And there's one lap to go. And so without even hesitating, she jumps back up and starts going. And, you know, these, these, are, these are trained athletes who are, you know, they have spent their whole year preparing for this race. And they are at a dead sprint. And here comes Heather Dornadin in the last place. And I tell you, it's an amazing thing. I had to watch it twice. You know, she ends up slowly but surely passing each person. And right at the finish line, she gets in first place again uh, within, with one lap. Just like goes into this gear that she said in an interview later, I went to this gear I didn't even know I had. Um, and it's amazing. She's like a gazelle, just like, you know, running through the, running through the indoor track meet. Um, but as I was watching this video, I was just amazed. I was like, you know, like, what, what is motivating her at this moment? What, what is she thinking? I would love to know what she was thinking. She falls down. There goes everyone. You know, most runners in that situation would just walk off the track. They'd say, okay, you know, they're going to get a did not finish. I, I, there's no way I can run. I'm just going to, I'm calling it a day. It's just not my day. But she got up and just kept going. 
And, uh, you know, what, what was fueling that? What, what was she thinking in that? I don't know. Maybe she wasn't thinking anything. Maybe it was just her instincts kicking in. But um, I kind of feel that way a little bit when I read the psalm. You know, what is it that's fueling David's worship, okay? People, are, people want him dead. People want him to be killed. He, he just narrowly escaped one person who wanted to kill him uh, with his life. But there's still a very powerful person who wants him dead. Um, you know, what, what, is, what is David thinking right now? What is motivating this worship? Where, what is fueling this worship? Well, David tells us. He doesn't leave it a secret. And the surprising answer is, it's his trouble. Uh, the things that, th- these troubles in his life, that's what's fueling his worship. So the first thing he tells us is about his fear. Look with me at verse 4. He says, I sought the Lord, and he answered me and delivered me from all my fears. Um, Calvin has called the Psalms an anatomy of all the parts of the soul, which I really like that description of the Psalms. And he said this, he said, There is not an emotion of which anyone can be conscious that is not here represented as in a mirror. In other words, he's saying that every human emotion uh, appears, you know, even, even those that touch the deepest parts of our heart, every human emotion appears somewhere in the Psalms. And it's not just the happy emotions, right, like joy, uh, but anxiety and fear, these things too. Uh, all of these we see somewhere in the Psalms. And David tells us here, look, you know, I was afraid, right? I, I was fearing for my life. But he said, I sought the Lord and he answered me. He heard me. And answered me. And those are some comforting words. Um, a few years ago, I read a book by a theologian named David Wells. Uh, and he wrote a book called The Courage to be Protestant. And it's a really, uh, it's a really great book. I'd recommend it to you. Uh, but one of the things that David Wells does in this book is he, he kind of takes a, a survey of sort of the American church, right? He kind of looks at the lay of the land. And he knows some really interesting things. And one of the things he says in this book <clears throat> is he says that we live in, a, in an age that's, you know, technologically advanced and super connected, right? We're connected with people all over the world, all over the country. You know, we have all these avenues of social media and all these things. You know, he says everyone has a voice, right? Whether it's on Facebook or Twitter or whatever, uh, everybody has a voice. Everyone has a perceived audience. Um, And he says the trouble is that everyone's talking, but no one's really listening. Um, that, That everyone's sort of speaking into the void, but, but no one's really listening. No one's really hearing. Um, and now I'm not trying to condemn social media or technology. Okay, I'm into that stuff. Uh, but what, what, my, the, my point is this, that, that if this is true, if, if this is really true, that, that we live in an age where everyone's speaking but no one's listening, then these, this verse in, in Psalm 34 has to be one of the most comforting verses in the Bible, right? Because if it's true that no one's really listening to us, we come to the Bible and we see, I sought the Lord and he answered me. That, that God hears us. That he not only hears us, but he answers us. Um, I sought him and he answered me. And we see that again actually in verse 6. Look down at verse 6. It says, This poor man cried and the Lord heard him and saved him out of all of his troubles. In an age where it's hard to get someone to truly, really listen to you, the Bible tells us that, that God listens to us. That he hears us and that he answers us. Uh, and so David goes on to say that God delivered him from all of his fears. He heard him, and he delivered him from all of his fears. He brought him through it. And so let me ask you, what, what are the things that are filling you with fear today? What, what are the things that even right now, at this very moment, what are the things that are filling your mind that are dis- distracting you from worship? Uh, the fears that are, that are overwhelming, that are consuming you. Now David is not telling us here that God is magically going to make all of our fears vanish. 
uh, that he's going to magically just take them away from us. We're not promised that. Uh, we're not promised that our greatest fears won't happen to us, okay? But what we are promised is that God will deliver us, that one way or another, that he will bring us through those fears. The next thing that David mentions is shame. We see that in verse 5. <clears throat> he says this. He says, those who look to him, that's God, those who look to God are radiant, and their faces shall never be ashamed. Shame can be a, a, a extremely powerful force which affects us deeply. It can be one of the hardest things to, to get over. We can carry shame with us for years, for decades, about something that we've done. Uh, we can convince ourselves that this thing, this thing that we carry shame for, that, that the God's gracious forgiveness can never reach that, that the blood of Jesus can never blot out or wash away that stain. But the Bible tells us something different about shame. The Bible tells us that the only place to go to deal with our shame is the cross of the Lord Jesus Christ, and that he's the only one capable of taking our shame and dealing with us. And so it's, it's a bit sad, isn't it, that, that our shame sometimes can prevent us from going to the only place where it can be dealt with. That our shame can prevent us from crying out to Jesus, who is the only one who can take it away from us. And David seems to understand this, at least somewhat, right? He says that those who look to God will never be ashamed. That God removes their shame. God forgives us through the work of his Son. Uh, Romans 8.1 tells us, a very familiar verse, that there is no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. Uh, that there is, there's no condemnation for us if we're trusting in Jesus, if we're resting in him. There is forgiveness, there is freedom, there's no shame, no condemnation. And David even puts this wonderful image to kind of go along with this, right? He says that uh, those who look to him, those who look to God, radiate, right? They are radiant. That how, how far has their shame been removed from them? It's been removed so much that they radiate, that just they, they glow, right? That there's, a, there's something about these people that is different. The last thing David tells us about is, are his troubles. And he tells us about that in verses 6 through 7. We, see that we read this in chapter in verse 6. This poor man cried, and the Lord heard him and saved him out of all of his troubles. The angel of the Lord encamps around those who fear him and delivers them. And so David's had a lot of troubles, right? The enemies of Israel, you know, the Philistines, they want him dead. But also the king of Israel wants him dead. Lots of people want David dead. Um, he has a lot to be, he has a lot of troubles, a lot weighing on him. But he, instead of making him bitter, instead of making him angry, he cries out to the Lord. And he finds deliverance. He finds salvation from his troubles. Uh, now, this doesn't mean that the lives of believers, you know, this doesn't mean that our lives are going to be free from all troubles. Uh, we know that. Look down at verse 19, actually, of, of Psalm 34. Uh, we read this. Many are the afflictions of the righteous, but the Lord delivers him out of them all. So we're, we're not promised freedom. We're not promised a life without afflictions. We're promised that there's going to be many afflictions, but that the Lord is going to deliver us. He's going to take care of us. He will bring us through these things, uh, that none of the things that we fear, none of the troubles that we face can ultimately separate us from the love of Christ, that none of these things can tear us out of his hand. And we, take, we can take great comfort in that. And so this is not just a song for David and for people way back when. This is a song for you and me. This is a song for us today. Uh, when we seek the Lord, when we cry out to him in the midst of our fears, in the midst of our shame, in the midst of our troubles, he will hear us and he will answer us. And this song of praise, this can be our song. This can be the song that we sing. We can sing of how the Lord has delivered us through his Son. Of how Jesus has purchased for us faith and new life and freedom and joy. How he's paid for all that with his life for us. We can cling to those things as blessings that come to us from the finished work 
of Jesus, and we can rest in that. And so it's interesting that these, these verses tell us that these things that can so easily pull us away from worship, our fear, our shame, our troubles, these things can actually provide us with opportunities for worship when we seek the Lord, when we cry out to Him, when we, when we make our refuge in Him, uh, that these things actually provide us with opportunities for worship. Um, so that leads us to our third point, which is the promise of worship. And so very briefly, we'll look at this in verses 8 through 10. Um, but first, I just want to say, I don't know if you saw this in the news this week, uh, but there was this uh, Reading Rainbow popped up in the news some this week. That, that the show Reading Rainbow, which is a big part of my childhood, I know, uh, is coming back, right? Reading Rainbow, it's been off the air for a few years, but they started a Kickstarter, which is like this way to kind of raise money from people. Uh, and they started this Kickstarter, and their goal was to raise a million dollars so they could put, start putting Reading Rainbow back on, it'd be an internet thing instead of a TV show. Um, and they raised a, a million dollars. Their, their goal was to raise a million dollars in like a month. And they raised a million dollars in like 11 hours for Reading Rainbow. So Reading Rainbow's coming back. Uh, but, and the, and the people have just continued to give money for Reading Rainbow. But the thing that I remember about this show so much growing up is that, you know, you have uh, LeVar Burton uh, telling you about these wonderful children's books. And, you know, you should check this book out and check this book out. Um, but then he would always kind of in the show, he'd have this, he had this little catchphrase. But don't take my word for it. But you, or you don't have to take my word for it, I think is what he said. But you don't have to take my word for it. And he would have, you know, here's some kids who kind of give their testimonials, right? Like, oh, here's a book that I love. And the, the sort of the implied thing was like, hey, you know, here's some kids who found books that they liked. You know, maybe you should go out and find some books that you like. You know, you don't have to read these books. You can just find any book that you like. Um, it was kind of an invitation to sort of try to, to find a book, to go try to read a book. To try it yourself. And that's what we see here in, in verse 8, I think. When David, he, he's invi- invited us to worship. Now he's given us his reasoning for worship. Here's the reasons that he's worshiping. And now he's inviting us to try it for ourselves. And he gives us this pretty bold challenge in verse 8. He says, Oh, taste and see that the Lord is good. Blessed is the man who takes refuge in him. And so he's saying, look, you know, he's using this kind of analogy of food, Right? Look, just taste it. Just, just get a taste for this, and I promise you will be satisfied. You will not go away disappointed. Um, it's sort of like when you were a kid, and you know, your mom would make something new and put it on the table, and you're, you turn your nose up at it. Oh, I don't like the, look that, the way that looks. Just try it. Just taste it. You may like it. And you taste it, and it's delicious. You know, your mom's a great cook. Um, but that's what David is saying here. Look, just, if you taste, if you just try it, you will see that the Lord is good. It will be obvious to you. His goodness is will be apparent to you. And so David now gives us this, this promise uh, for worship. And what is the promise? We see that in verses 9 and 10. Oh, fear the Lord, you his saints, for those who fear him have no lack. The young lions suffer want and hunger, but those who seek the Lord lack no good thing. The, the promise is that you will not lack, right? You will lack no good thing. And he even goes as far to say that, look, the, the young lions who are swift and strong who can catch whatever prey that they want. The young lions will go hungry before God's people lack any good thing. That's how confident he is. That's how serious this, this promise is. Uh, and we see this in, David, in another one of David's psalms, Psalm 23, right? The Lord is my shepherd, I shall not want, or I shall not lack. And again, this is not a guarantee that we're going to have everything that we want in this life. Um, this is, God is not some magic genie sort of granting every wish. But what this is promising us is that we'll have everything that we need, that God is going to provide for us, um, that our needs are going to be met. And really what's being offered here in, this, in these verses is satisfaction. 
That's what David is inviting us to. He's saying, come and feast and be satisfied. He's, he's not just inviting us to worship. He's inviting us to a feast. He's inviting us to finally be satisfied and to find that satisfaction in God. And this, this sort of food uh, satisfaction analogy is not a new one uh, in the Bible. Uh, we see these words in, in Isaiah 55. The prophet Isaiah writes, Come, everyone who thirsts, come to the waters. And he who has no money, come, buy, and eat. Come, buy wine and milk, without money and without price. Why do you spend your money for that which is not bread, and your labor for that which does not satisfy? Listen diligently to me, and eat what is good, and delight yourselves in rich food. There's this extended sort of metaphor comparing our coming to God with, uh, with this wonderful rich invitation to rich food, to wine and milk, and to water, and even those who have no money to come and buy and eat. And Jesus also does this in the Gospels when he says this, I am the bread of life. Whoever comes to me shall not hunger, and whoever believes in me shall never thirst. And Jesus is saying, come to me for true satisfaction. So the scriptures frequently use this analogy of food, this analogy of satisfying our hunger, um, to describe how Jesus can truly satisfy that. We saw that in the Beatitudes. We saw that in Psalm 107 in our call to worship this morning. And that's what David is calling us to. He's calling us to come and worship, to come and find our treasure in the Lord, to taste and see his goodness. And we will not be disappointed. We will not be hungering and thirsting for more, but we'll be spiritually satisfied. And so all of our deepest longings can find their fulfillment in Jesus. And that's where our worship is born, when we see him as our greatest treasure, when we see him as the only thing that our souls can boast in. And so our fears and our shame, our troubles, these things can easily drive us away from prayer. They can drive us away from our devotion to God. But they can also provide us with opportunities to seek Him, with opportunities to find our refuge and our shelter in Him, and to taste and see that He is good. And bizarrely, it's these things which we thought were so bad, these things, which, these things that we were dreading so much, become the fuel for our worship. Uh, these things turn around uh, and fuel and motivate our worship. Our fears, uh, when we see the Lord deliver us from them, our shame, when we feel Him take that away from us, and our troubles when we, when we find deliverance and salvation from our troubles. Uh, we see uh, God's hand. We see and taste his goodness. It's almost as if we get to witness our very morning turning into dancing. And it's almost as if God had planned it that way all along. Amen. Let's go to him in prayer. Gracious Heavenly Father, we thank you uh, that, that you are good. And we thank you that, that we are invited many, many times in your word to come to you to taste and to see that that you are good uh, lord i pray that uh, this morning that we would uh, heed that invitation that we would all uh, seek you this week that no matter what fears or shame or troubles we may be enduring that we would seek you that we would find our refuge in you and that we would that you would turn our morning into dancing that you would turn our laments into songs of praise and joy and father we pray that through all these things that we would uh, be, look more and more like your son, Jesus Christ. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen.